I'm Judy Pollack, Executive Editor at AdAge. Our guest today on the podcast might actually have been a noted chef if he didn't decide to go into advertising, but we're glad he did. Ryan Kutcher is Chief Creative Officer and Founder of Circus Maximus, a New York shop which has over the years won its fair share of AdAge Small Agency Awards. Today, we're talking about everything from his early days at Crispin Porter and the creation of Whopper Freakout to where he and his agency fit into today's project-led world. Along the way, we'll learn about what he thinks makes a good creative today, where he thinks the business is going, and why his dog was kicked out of WeWork. Welcome, Ryan. So, Ryan, I was digging in our archives when I was preparing for this interview. And I think I learned that you had a decision to make between culinary school and ad school. Yeah. And you chose ad school. Tell us about that. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, it was, it was going to be some trade, but I liked cooking and I still do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but ultimately, yeah, no, I had applied to the CIA. It's in um, West, uh, West Point. Mm-hmm. So it's just up the Hudson. Hyde Park or whatever. Yeah, yeah Hyde yeah. Park. And um, I, yeah, I don't know why. It was like the, the Miami Ad School or um, – the culinary school and I had applied and I had a phone interview and you know there neither one of those is like super rigorous to get into but yeah. um, for for whatever reason I decided I would do advertising and make cooking kind of like a a hobby mm-hmm. and uh, probably based on the fact that ad school was in South Beach Miami and that seemed like more fun than Hyde Park and um, yeah the rest is like you know history mm-hmm. but uh, yeah I, just, I mean. Still, still use my girlfriend as the uh, guinea pig. Do you have a special dish? Well, lately it's green Thai green curry, Ooh. which is really about just getting the right curry paste at like a Thai store, um, and you know, feels very exotic when you make it. But it's, it's, I mean, it's good. Let the record show he did not bring any. I did. <laughs> I didn't know this was like we're going to eat on the show. But. That's okay. Well, so tell me then about, because right out of Miami Ed School, you went to Crispin, right? That wasn't a bad first gig. No, it was a good first gig. I mean, it was one of those things where it was like, from the time I heard about advertising and knew that it was a career to the time that I essentially got into it, the universe, like the stars aligned. Because I was at at a small school. I I went to William & Mary in Virginia, Mm -hmm. and I studied economics, and I was going to, you know, go to Wall Street because that's like the only thing that I sort of knew existed as like a kid, you know. Um, And, you know, I had dropped out of the business school. So I was an econ major and I was a business minor. And then ultimately I was like, there was some class that I had missed and it was about accounting and they said that it was going to be too hard for me to get, either way. So I dropped out of the business school and yet miraculously I got an email about an advertising class. This was for my second semester senior year. It was a one-credit class. That means it met once a week as a second-semester senior. That was, like, perfect, you know, for my ambitions. And uh, it was taught by a guy named Sean Fitzpatrick who had worked at McCann. Yeah. Do you know his name? Yeah, he did a lot of auto advertising, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, He was like, I'm the guy that came up with Heartbeat of America. Exactly. And I was like, holy shit. I didn't even know advertising. I really didn't even know it existed. And when I was a kid, I'd draw. I would draw and I would paint and I would do, you know, create stories and I would do comic books and all that stuff. And so to hear this guy talk in the first five minutes of this class that I shouldn't have been in for this career that I didn't know existed, I was like, that's what I'm doing. I'm doing that. And so when I graduated, um, he also had advised me. So this is Williamsburg, Virginia. He was retired. He's like, there's an agency in Richmond that's pretty good. 
they do this summer course. It was the Martin Agency. And so um, that led to like a 15-day internship where we were kind of paired into these groups of five and everyone kind of was like, you be the creative guy, you be the account guy, you be the strategy person. And we basically pitched to uh, a council of, you know, Martin Agency executives. And it was for Olympus cameras and my group won. And the work was bad, but it was, you know, but we had won. And so after that, I was like, this is great. I love this. This is fantastic. Um, will you hire me? I think I want to be a writer. And they were like, absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I was like, what? I just went to college. What do I, what do I need to do? And they said, well, it was actually a guy named uh, Dave Clements who was working at the Martin Agency in 2002. And he said, well, you've got to go to an ad school. And I was like, all right, where are those located? He said, there's two in Atlanta. And I was like, well, that sounds, that's warm. I mean, most of my decision-making for higher education was based on temperature. And so that sounded better than Virginia, Mm -hmm. um, but not great. He said, there's one here in Richmond. And I was like, "Mm, not really interested in that. And he said, there's one in Miami Beach. And I was out the door. Yeah. And I went. And so I started in 2000, at the very beginning of 2003 at Miami Ad School. And at that time, Crispin was like kind of, you know, bubbling up like they had done the mini work they had done a lot of the truth work well, I don't know how to have, they were growing right mm-hmm. and so a lot of the teachers from Crispin were teaching at Miami Ad School and every other teacher was like had been retired for like 30 years you know and this is just a very different style and I was like the, everything these guys are saying seems fun and interesting and so I took as many classes with those guys as I could and then this was before the Miami Ad School. At some point, they had like a partnership with Crispin. This was before that. So a year and a half later, uh, I dropped out of the ad school and took an internship. And this was like two months, you know, after they had won um, Burger King. And I think just by virtue of getting in there, it was 150 people, still relatively small, and they had these huge needs. So there was a role for me right away doing interactive writing, basically. And, uh, yeah, that's kind of how that happened. And then, so three, four months later, still unpaid internship. I basically took an unpaid job (laughs) at CPB because they didn't pay much, but it was, um, a great opportunity. And I was, you know, instantly working on kind of award-winning stuff, you know, these great opportunities every day, the briefs were, they were coming through were great. And so, um, you know, competitive environment, but it was, it was great. So that was sort of the dream team at that time, right? But Gusky was there for the first time. And yeah. And was Keller and everybody still there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Rob Riley was fairly okay. new. Andrew Keller had been there. But, you know, um, these guys were just creative directors at the time. Yeah. But there was like a studio vibe to the place and very competitive. So um, only the ideas that Bogusky really liked made it to see clients. And pretty much everyone was on everything. It was like scrum method. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, so I mean, right away, you know, you, Bob Sinfroni, uh, you know, Evan Fry, uh, these guys that are all, you know, kind of have won every award in the book, um, kind of vying for every assignment. But what was cool at the time was that, and this is a joke, because my, my, my business partner now is Paul Sutton, and he started like three months before me, and Paul basically started the integrated production department there. This is 2004, and uh, it was in a room. It was like Paul, Jeff Benjamin, um, one coder, one developer, uh, and like a a producer, another producer, 
and myself who was sitting on the floor <laughs> and people would come in and they would ask Paul if he could fix their email, like their, their outlook. Because he thought that's that that's what they thought this department was, and it was like, no, we're not <laughs> IT. We're like building websites for these clients. We're doing these interactive. Uh, so, yeah, from the get go, it was a thing that was sort of looked looked down on with skepticism, uh, in some ways. But that's where all the opportunity was. So we did these like campaigns for like, it was called Ugafflements. It was r- ridiculous, and um, we did all the, sort of the the web sort of three hundred and sixty stuff. And then that's what started winning all these awards and kind of got everyone's attention. And, you know, um, Subservient Chicken was oh, like yeah. a big deal, you know. And um, and there was like hit after hit after hit because Burger King was doing a campaign every month. Right. Um, and so that was really kind of how, how we got our start there. Right. And you worked on Whopper Freakout? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did that yeah. one come about? Well, that one was um, – yeah, well, it was like, uh, so, you know, this is probably two or three years later. Um, you know, everything was always kind of tied into the strategy, as I'm using air quotes, about have it your way. And the brief was, how do we, you know, we need to do a big campaign for the Whopper. It's America's most preferred, you know, preferred in every taste test, whatever. So it's America's favorite Whopper. Um, what campaigns are we going to do to celebrate this? And <clears throat> we came up with, it was like, I remember there's a big meeting. This was in Boulder and Bogusky was in the meeting. And it, like my first instinct for whatever reason was like, well, if people really love this thing, like what if they can't have it? So it's like, uh, it was, uh, it's have it your way. So what if you can't have it your way? Mm-hmm. And um, he had, he had come up with an idea kind of in this round table. It was like 30 people in the room for new Whopper which was like new Coke. Mm-hmm. So the idea was, what if we orchestrated a marketing disaster, uh-huh. you know, that was designed to basically remind people how much they love this thing, the original was. It was like, we'll come out with new Whopper and it'll be exactly like the Big Mac and it'll suck and people will hate it. <laughs> and then we'll reintroduce the Whopper. Uh, and so it was like kind of uh, within that kind of conversation, it was like, well, what if we did this other, th- what if we just took it off the menu and just said, hey, it's discontinued. Um, and that's ultimately what, Whopper freakout sort of was was a prank on people. It's like, oh, you like this thing? You can't have it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it just, it was one of those things that, uh, you know, really worked, Mm -hmm. really worked. So, you know, we kind of, anytime you can kind of play a prank on people is generally (laughs) pretty watchable. Yeah. But you obviously eventually left there, right? What prompted you to decide to to, to leave? Um, Well, it was just like... You just, it was like the, you could just feel. A, I remember I was on a shoot for something and we were doing like kind of a watered down version of something we had done years ago. And I was like, ah, I think the party's over. Yeah. You know, this was like 2009 ish. And I was in Seattle and I was just like sitting at the hotel. And I, I was, remember feeling like I'd rather not do this anymore. And I had ambitions to do. You know, I had even at that time, I had ambitions to start something of my own, mm-hmm. which was probably way too early. But I just, I don't know. The party was kind of over. Yeah. Um, I knew that, well, now I know. I didn't, I wouldn't have had the language or the understanding at the time, but the partners had sold. Yeah. Their final shares, their final earnout had been earned out. And, um, you know, I remember going into Bogusky's office and showing him something, and he and he goes, "I don't want you to think of me as the creative director anymore." Mm. That's what Rob and Andrew do now, and I was like, "Oh, interesting." So there's this yeah. change, and yeah. So I felt like it was my time to go. I had been there for almost six years, 
which was like three times longer than almost anyone lasted at that agency. And so I was like, okay. Um, and so, yeah, at that time, a small group of people, we tried to start an agency. We pitched another piece of business that was kind of in the Denver area and we thought it was going really well and then it didn't go well. But, but, you know, I had made the decision to leave and then I just started freelancing cause I didn't know, you know, there was no real path forward. And then I had friends that were like, hey, man, you can make all this money freelancing. Right. And you can. <laughs> you can. Um, and then so I started freelancing, and I was basically using freelance to get into every agency I could and, and see what was kind of going on. Because, it, it, you know, when I joined CPB, it was just so obvious that that was like the hot shop of sure. like what's happening now. And there really was – I mean, Droga was very hot, but like there was no – there was no clear-cut like that's the future kind of agency. Um, and so I just kind of freelanced everywhere. And I use this as, as an excuse to freelance in Europe and a little bit like in Asia. And um, I just didn't see, you know, I just didn't see what was next, but I was kind of freelancing. And then I just kind of developed, like when I freelanced, I would triple book. So I would freelance, probably illegal, but I would, <laughs> <laughs> too late now. I would freelance. I would work for like a large agency on something fairly dull. And that would be, Okay, there's like, that's your your base, you know. Like, okay, there's, and then I would work in like a medium sized agency on something that could be good, right. and I would work on a small agency that had a great project but no money, and that was kind of like the, those were the three balls that I was juggling during freelance, mm -hmm. and that was you know fulfilling for a while, but it just didn't seem like they were building towards anything, right? And so at some point I was like, well, I gotta, I guess I'll probably take a job or, or you know try to start an agency or something like that. Right. Yeah. Which you eventually did, but there was like a brief stop at Thompson. For there a while. was, yeah. yeah. JWT. For a minute. <laughs> the, the most unlikely place. But yeah. it was like I had always worked at agencies that weren't in New York. I mean, I, you know. Yeah, bad weather, right? <laughs> I mean, tough weather. And I was always skeptical of um, the industry here for some reason. Like, whether it was the people I met or whether it was the fact that it was so established, I was skeptical of New York in general. Even though I grew up, like, around here, mm -hmm. um, I just – it just didn't I – mean, whenever I met them, it was like there was no, like, energy. Um, and that was the idea behind Thompson was they had hired a bunch of new people. They hired Jeff Benjamin. They hired a few other people in their C-suite. And the idea was can we reinvigorate, you know, this agency – and so the way I looked at that was it was a, a feather in the cap of working for a large holding company, um, having the validation of this ridiculous title. They gave me chief creative officer of New York. Right. I was like 32. Wow. Yeah, it was a, it was a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> but I sort of grew up kind of quick. You, you get real pretty quick. And then it was a, it was a, it was a great experience to kind of see how the P&L worked and how are these big agencies constructed from a business standpoint. And um, there was a lot of conflict there. Mm -hmm. um, the departments that should be working together to help clients were, in fact, on separate P&Ls and in some ways competed. Um, you know, people were not motivated to push work out. Like if you do, if you commit to an idea and you execute it and you put it out into the world and it's, let's say it doesn't work, your name is attached to that. You just, you know, in the framework of that agency or that model, um, you've made a big mistake because uh, your name is on this 
thing that sucked or didn't work. Right. And the other thing that happened, I saw a couple other things happening, which was like this 2013. Everyone I knew that was really talented was trying to get into freelance in every department. Um, technology was, you know, social media was kind of bubbling up. People were developing skills that went beyond traditional art director, copywriter. So people could do more stuff for themselves and they had opportunity outside of the advertising agency world. <clears throat> the second was clients were giving away projects to smaller, nimbler, more interesting, frankly, more interesting shops. I remember having a conversation in the hallway as, as the new chief creative officer of Thompson with a client who had a cool project, who I said, hey, you know, our background is kind of, you know, CPB and, you know, kind of trotting out some of the old um, creative stuff that we thought might be more enticing to them. And <clears throat> they looked me straight in the eye and said, hey, we don't think of you as that kind of agency. And I said, damn, well, either I can try to change JWT and make it into the kind of agency that would cause this client to reevaluate us and give us that project, or... I could create a new agency that looked a lot more like those agencies that they felt they wanted, nimble, fast-paced, super capable, uh, in some ways less expensive. Um, and the benefit is I don't have to have all this capital because I can get freelancers who are super talented right. and have all these skills. And that was the idea behind Circus Maximus. Mm -hmm. So that's what happened. Eleven long months, short months, long months after <laughs> I started at JWT, Circus Maximus. Circus Maximus. Well, we wrote about it when it first opened, and it said kind of at the time that it, you were thinking it's going to be about five people with working mm -hmm. with just a freelance base. Yeah. Of course, now you're like forty people. Uh, well, we're forty if you include our studio and our development, which is not in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I mean to be honest, like. Yeah, vague business plan. <laughs> to be to be fair, but you had one. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, there was what there was like a business opportunity, and I don't know that I had the um, skill to necessarily put a plan together. But I was like, well, I see the ingredients, and this seems to be what people want. Um, and the idea was like, what if we could take uh, a core group of seasoned executive veterans with a lot of talent behind them, and uh, you know, kind of go in SWAT team style for clients that have various needs because, you know, you know, I'm not the last guy to talk about this, but media has exploded. There's all these different channels. How do they wrangle this? They need creative ideas that can do a lot of different things and go a lot of different places. How can we kind of tackle that for them? And then depending on what the actual needs uh, are of, of the business, build a team that kind of looks perfect for that. Mm -hmm. and, and that was, that was, that was sort of that. That is what we do. That was what we do. And yeah, we have grown, but um, a lot of, you know, a lot of our people will never meet. Yeah. We have twenty people in India. I don't. Mm. I don't go to India. No. I don't go to. I mean, I don't go to Brazil. Yeah. You know, the develop. You know, the development for the digital stuff just gets done. Right. Um, and that's where uh, Paul, who it was. Uh, foreshadowed earlier in the story yes. uh, came back and it helps kind of wrangle because he's kind of the head of production. And I, I was just like, what if we just got rid of this large vertically integrated idea and were completely flat mm -hmm. um, and used all different kinds of technology and um, pr uh, project management software uh, and, you know, Google Hangouts and shared docs and all this stuff 
to approximate what an agency was. Because <clears throat> when we were working at CPB, I mean, we were we were producing so much work. No one was ever in one place at one time, mm -hmm. and we basically operated remotely. Um, and now, you know, that's that's essentially the the operating structure of what we do now. So yeah. we're 15 people down the street. Um, and that's kind of, it's growing a little bit each month, but yeah, we're, we're 20 plus in India and however many in Brazil, depending and kind of, you know, it is sort of growing, but yeah. yeah. Has there been any evolution though, between now and then and how you've approached, you know, have you changed since when you first started? Well, yeah. Well, when we first started, like everything was theoretical. Yeah. And in some ways I was kind of trying to recreate CPB in terms of the kinds of creative ideas that we were creating. Um, and, and now I think we've become much more, um, probably like everyone, you know, media has become much more important to what we do, the analytics, um, the social listening, uh, the kinds of ideas that we create are actually smaller. So we used mm -hmm. to kind of take these like big whopper freak out like, oh, everyone will talk about it. Yeah. But now the news cycle is so fast. Those ideas just, it doesn't make sense to spend a million dollars to do a thing like that. Yeah. And so what we do is a lot more kind of like, you know, branding, brand strategy, and then um, like a lot of evergreen content, a lot of campaigns that we can get done quickly that we test and see how they're working. And then we double down on the stuff that's working really well. Mm -hmm. um, but we do try to infuse all of those ideas rather than making it like sort of boring and like rote, whatever. Um, we do try to have some spice on all the stuff that we, we kick out. So yeah. we still have a lot of fun with the work that we do, but we try to do it fast. We try to do it efficiently and we try to do it repeatedly. Right. Well, actually, I was telling you that we wrote a story about when you first opened. I want to give you a line from it. Um, the actual line said, It wasn't long ago that the landscape of New York, of the New York ed market, was largely made of long-established Madison Avenue firms, the flagship offices of network behemoths. But today, there's a mix of indie shops, many started by big agency creatives that have departed to hang their own shingle, such as Eric Silver and Jerry Graff. <laughs> And others like Lear Burnett, Goodby Silverstein, and McKinney that are giving the New York ad market a try. Of course, now we've got, you know, Silver's now at McCann. Jerry yeah. just had to close his agency, That's an obituary. Sadly. I know, exactly. <laughs> Goodby New York is no longer around. Yeah. McKinney and Lear, you know. Yeah. Like, how how could things have changed so drastically in this short period of time? Honestly, I mean, like, that's the thing about even with, with us – the thing that I thought I was starting in 2013, by 2015, I was like, you can't do that. Yeah. Well, we got to figure out this other thing. But the need for our services are, is still there and growing. It's just the way that we package them, sell them. And it was like, yeah, I mean, I, you know, you know, I think Jerry said it in the, in the article about the closing of BFG, which yeah. was, you know, clients are increasingly increasingly going to um, project work mm -hmm. and that's sort of true um, so but you know circus Maximus was sort of designed to handle that right that's you what I was that, like yeah. okay this big industry is crumbling into small pieces right so if you had a small agency those little pieces would be big enough but if you've designed an agency that needs a big piece a blue chip AOR to survive, I think you're out of luck. Like, so, you know, I don't know how those agencies operated or whatever, but we, I wanted to work with smaller and smaller and smaller clients, but mm -hmm. do more and more and more of them. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing that we've done is like we've done project work, but we've you know I think where the agents the agencies and and client relationship also had it wrong was pay me for my time. Right. And we always I was from the get go have been trying to figure out like how do you pay me for my value because you create a very large amount of value in a very short window of time when we work together. So we might figure out your brand strategy. We might come up with six campaigns for you that you're going to run for the next two years. Um, you know, we're going to create uh, email drip campaigns that are related to your social media campaigns that are, you know, related to your uh, content campaigns that are related to experiential. And then that value is going to be realized over the next 24 months, 36 months. Okay. And so our our payment structures have changed a lot as well, where it's it's much more like uh, we'll do equity, we'll do royalties, we'll do um, performance-based bonuses. If we hit certain KPIs, if we're above certain benchmarks, so that our uh, you know success with our clients is, is pegged on the value rather than the time. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people say that's hard to do, but you seem to have managed fine with it. Or is it just changing your strategy is difficult, maybe because you started out? I think way. it's hard to do. I think it's hard to do if you're, you know, like looking at the da- the model that JWT was working on, they cannot do it. Mm-hmm. They cannot compete that way. Right. How would they do it? They can't do it. Because if you take equity in a small piece of a small client, how do you distribute that value to your employees and right. make it fair? How do you do it in a way that it isn't a conflict? With us, because of the way that we're sort of structured, we're able to do that. And, and and I don't even know that a CFO at a company like that would think to do something along those lines necessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe some of the performance-based bonuses. But, um, yeah. I mean, I think when when we were thinking about Circus Maximus, I don't, do you know the wonderful company? Oh, it's like the, pomegranate. Yeah, yeah. And a, so that's a, an example of a company that I was like, that's smart. So – the founding couple were this is 1970s. Yeah. She was pitching some ad campaign, and he was the CEO of, I, be, I forget, exa- uh, some flower company. Oh, yeah, yeah. So 1-800-Flowers was what came out of this relationship. Either way, they hit it off, and their plan was really like, okay, so we're going to do 1-800-Flowers. Um, I'll be the creative. You be the CEO. And then they sort of created this other entity that was the marketing wing. And then they bought another company and that was Palm Wonderful. And then they bought another company and that was Almonds. And then they bought another company and that was Pistachios. And at the center was this marketing company that sort of did the through line, but they owned all of the surrounding properties as well. And Mm -hmm. sometimes all the way, like owning the orchards and so forth. And I was like, well, that's a smarter way to do it. And so part of what the vision for Circus Maximus was uh, was to have equity in these companies so that we're shared. And then those are feeding into the marketing mm. entity that sits at the center and that Circus Maximus. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, we're probably going to conflict ourselves out of being able to work with clients that we, you know, we don't know um, mm. because we'll have some sort of a, you know, oh, we already work with a company in this category. And since we have equity, it would be a conflict, that kind of a thing. But I'm okay right. with that. Yeah. You know? Well, that seems to indicate, though, that there is opportunity for smaller agencies in this equation. But we keep hearing a lot about these holding company reviews. And Hmm. we just had this week Mondelez, for example. They uh, picked two holding companies. But then they have this – I've never heard this one before. It's new. We have guest agencies, quote, unquote, that are going to do things. So does 
does that present opportunities or problems for a small agency when you're I mean, to me, it's opportunity. It just depends on how sort sort of small you are Mm -hmm. and what kind of a guest (laughs) guest (laughs) guest spot you get. Um, Like we, so we met P and G, you know, two years ago at the Small Agency Awards. They liked the campaign we had done. We met with, uh, you know, sort of some of the members of their team that were explicitly there to find small agencies because within the P and G portfolio, they also know that things are going small. They're not going big, and they've said to us, "We've seen this." P&G will have more brands than they ever had in, in their history, but all of those brands will be smaller. And so their pie will grow, but it won't be one, you know, home run Gillette size piece of business. They'll, they'll you know, they'll have three things in skincare. They'll have 40 things and, you know, whatever. Um, and so I think there is a ton of opportunity for small. You mm-hmm. just have to be able to uh, figure out how to kind of make it all work from a business standpoint. And that's what I think, I started as a creative. That's the part that none of us really have any idea how to do. Right. Um, and so, you know, kind of making it work. I've also been a fit, sort of obsessed with efficiency. Like how can we how can we do the same thing with less people? Which is maybe scary, I guess, if you're some like creatives or whatever. But right. um, and that's where technology comes in. You can just do more. You know, mm-hmm. I have art directors like I <clears throat> I would never hire an art director that looked like an art director looked in 2008, in 2019, because they wouldn't have the skill set. What do you mean, look how they looked? If if this was your resume and I was looking at it and these were your, you know, this this is your skill set and I do this and I do this and Mm -hmm. I do that, um, they just wouldn't be able to compete with the art directors and even the writers and so there's like, they're called predators, you know, Uh, producer, editor, shooter. They work in uh, After Effects. They know how to work a camera. They know how to, yeah, it's like Photoshop's easy. You do. You're laughing because it's no, like, it isn't. and they keep you in this closet, <laughs> man. You're going to get out of here. You're going to run this place. Um, Let the record show that was Max, our producer, he was talking to. Yeah, he just started nodding his head. Look at, look at his gear. I mean, this guy can do anything. <laughs> he can go shoot a TV show. If someone oh, he, just, he does everything, trust me. Yeah. And so those were the people that I was yeah. like, well, with those kinds of people, we could, we could do anything. Mm-hmm. But if you're the kind of creative that wants to sit at a coffee shop and like bounce ideas off of your art director partner for three weeks and come up with like the big idea, you're out of a job. Right. But, you know, I've been hearing you you were talking about Miami Ed School. They said you have to go and get an education in advertising. Yeah. Is that not as important somewhere? Now I hear people are hiring people from completely different disciplines who have never worked in advertising. Yeah. What's your feeling about that? Great. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, because, you know, the power through technology has been, been put into people's hands. So, like, you, got, you get, uh, you know, someone that maybe went to film school and they can do everything that we used to need a creative team a producer, probably a, a production company, an edit house. It would be like four separate verticals, four separate businesses. It would cost hundreds of thousands of dollars at each stage to yeah. get people to do it. These, you know, they can do on your phone now. So, yeah. <clears throat> you know, this is like the Gary Vaynerchuk model. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, these kids have the skills. They don't have the experience. And so they might ne- not necessarily kind of always understand how to, 
create against a brief that's written for a brand strategy, but it sort of doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of that stuff is disappearing anyway. Like the idea that you need to be super tight to a specific brand strategy and only execute on that. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's opportunity. Right. Those are the those are the people that are gonna. If we don't give them opportunities, they're gonna take ours. Yeah. And yeah. so um, it's it's cool to see, like especially when we interview uh, you know people for various positions and so on. It's like, wow, you do all that. Yeah. Yeah, and I do the website and I do the thing. It's like you're hired. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, if you could take advantage of that, and I think for me, the formula was. Talent, talented people will always over-deliver if you give them a good opportunity. Mm-hmm. If they're inspired and motivated to do it, yeah. by, the, by the creative opportunity, they will give you everything they have and more. Yeah. And so that's where I saw like, okay, well, clients have, you know, Mondelez has guest spot opportunities yeah. on cool brands that honestly a CFO at a large agency would go $300,000. I don't give a shit. Yeah. Doesn't, you know, exactly. That's one-third my salary. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? That's that's not uh, that's not Greenwich gas money. Mm-hmm. For us, the way that we're constructed, that's great. We yeah. love those. So. Well, when you first formed, you actually talked about models that you appreciated. Co Collective was one, mm-hmm. and um, Alex's thing. I forget, but the Common, right? Wasn't it called Common? Yeah. So, yeah. so I'm, I'm kind of curious. It sort of brings me back to Bogusky. What did, were you surprised to see him go back to the agency after all? That? Yeah, I yeah. sent him a uh, email. I don't like stay in super contact with yeah. him, but I, I, I have worked with him, uh, when I was a freelancer. And then when I saw that, I sent him a note. I said, man, what are you doing? Like you were out, <laughs> you were out. Um, and I don't know what he's doing, but he wrote yeah. me back. He goes, it's, I didn't even understand it. It was like a cryptic Bogusky email, but it was like, it's all the same. And I said, all right. I'm on the mountaintop. We got it. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know what, what, the, he probably got bored. I mean, yeah. I think honestly though, he had built this great thing. And as a creative person, it's like very fulfilling to do that, to have a, a bunch of creative people that are working for you and you're sort of, you know, in meetings with interesting people that are creating their own brands and, and you can have an idea and you can make that idea come to life. And I'm sure he, there was, I, I speculate that there was probably some part of him that missed that. He's not very old, mm-hmm. still in his early 50s. Right. You know, I'm sure he was just like sitting in Boulder going like, there's only so much hiking you can do. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. you know. Here's the part where I get to some personal questions. Okay. So you have an Australian Shepherd, I hear. I do, Tell yes. Tell me about your dog. Uh, that's Rudder. He is an Australian Shepherd. He is uh, fantastic. For a, a very short amount of time, I try to make him like an Instagram dog, but Didn't it's work. just a lot of work. Yeah. Oh. That's a full time job. Okay. Um, but yeah, so he's great. And then he got kicked out of our WeWork. So he had a little, he had a run in with a, a golden doodle puppy. And it was, <laughs> it was not, Shame. it really, yeah, it really wasn't anyone's fault. But, you know, once those things get reported, you know, the higher power comes in and makes some decisions. So he used to come to the office every day, and now he can only come every so often. Okay. But yeah, he's he's fantastic. How old he's, is he? He is four and a half years old. Oh, okay. He's, so he's a, just a baby. He's a less. pup, but yeah. he's kind of finally mellowed out. I mean, he's a very intelligent and needy breed. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, I think I definitely have a tendency to um, make my life difficult. And so, like, you know, start an agency, get a dog. He's the most difficult breed you can imagine in New York City. And um, so he's all, like, 
just kind of part of the theme. But he's great. <laughs> okay. Yeah, he's he's my he's my boy. I thought so. He's mentioned yeah. on your Twitter and everything. Oh yeah, 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 he's yeah. he's the best. Um, here's the other one. At one point, you worked at Amaz- for Amazon Prime Video, right? Yes. Own- yeah. Do you have a favorite binge? Yeah. yeah. Two. So, well, several. Okay. Yeah. So, tell me. Amazon Prime is like getting pretty good. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you've watched the marvelous Miss Maisel. Yeah. Uh huh. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, and I used to think that the Prime shows were kind of a joke, but they're they're actually <laughs> really good. Um, what did I watch recently? Have you seen The Boys? No, I haven't. Oh, The Boys is good. The Boys is good. I accidentally binged that like two weeks ago, right when it came out. It's about superheroes. Oh, okay. But it's about it's it's very well done. It's not like a Marvel show. It's more like these superheroes in this world exist, but they're kind of at this you know intersection between celebrities, politicians. And then the the political side of things kind of turns into like almost military. So the way that they've got these superpowers, so it's like, oh, maybe we should make these superheroes part of national defense. And then, but you realize that these super superheroes are not necessarily good guys. Mm. It's a good show. Mm. Um, what else? There was another one. Oh, uh, they just canceled it, but it's one of my favorites. It's called The Patriot. It's about a hitman. Oh, who's also. Um, like sort of undercover as like a normal guy. So he's got to take like a normal job at a... Uh, Ad agency. No. <laughs> no, not... Yeah, that would be... Uh, it's like a government contractor that deals with uh, oil pipelines and stuff like that. But he's also a folk singer. Oh. And so part of each episode is just... It's the way that he kind of uh, releases his stress and anxieties through these folk songs. But the folk songs are also – he's like essentially singing the plot. Uh, it's really, really good. But it was two seasons, and they I just found out they canceled it, so I'm disappointed because yeah. that's – but you can still check it out, and I, I strongly recommend. Okay. Well, yeah. good. We have yeah. something to watch yeah. for the rest of the summer because it's pretty dead here in the city. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how is there a campaign that you didn't do that you wish you did? Like. Yeah, we were actually, I think this might have been an old CPB idea, but we wanted to do an award show for the campaigns that we didn't sell. Let me think, because I was just talking about one the other day. Um, Man, let me try to remember what it was. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we will like bring back the old ideas and, yeah. and repackage them. Yeah. yeah. And if it's a good idea, it's a good idea. But sometimes, because like like the Whopper thing, yeah. like new Whopper, that would work for a lot of brands as long as the product was like an iconic thing that people cared about. Mm-hmm. Well, I tell you, actually, I thought the Roman work was really great. It was really fun stuff Thank that you. you guys did. Yeah, that yeah. was that was a fun brand. I mean, that was that was a good example of like that. Roman is an example of the kind of client that we really want to work on and typifies like kind of a Circus Maximus approach. So, so those guys... Uh, actually, former colleagues. One of one of the founders worked at CPB, and then he went and started working for a uh, VC called Prehype, and that took them to BarkBox. You may be familiar with BarkBox. Oh yeah, we, subscriber. Yeah. Um, so those guys kind of incubated over there, and they were um, creative and uh, customer acquisition guys. And they came together, they had this idea, and they didn't even have a name for it, but it was going to be this vertically integrated men's telemedicine diagnostic and subscription platform. Since that's a mouthful, it ended up becoming Roman. And, <laughs> uh, and we helped work with those guys on the name, the branding, the 
brand strategy, content plans, um, and and it just went really quickly because they had like very little money to begin with, one point five something like that million dollars, which is not a for their ambition of what they wanted yeah. to do is is not a huge amount of um, seed seed funding and. <clears throat> But we did this video for them that was funny, that was kind of like, you know, we felt guys would – it would open up the conversation because it was kind of making fun of the advertising that had been out for, you know, 30 years for Viagra and like this obscure kind of metaphors that don't really mean anything but they kind of reference erections and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that worked really well and that was fun to get the ball rolling and then there was like a customer acquisition platform and it was all about, you know, sort of changing the conversation around men's health. That So we need to have this conversation because ED, while sort of sensitive and sometimes funny, is also a barometer for your overall health. So if you're a man and it's not functioning properly, it could be a sign of something else that's serious too. So it's not just about resolving that. It's about having a better uh, relationship with our own health. And all the statistics will tell you men die on average eight years earlier than women. We suffer from, you know, cardiac diseases, stuff like that at greater rates. And a lot of that is uh, a result of cultural information that we're given when we're young. Don't Men don't cry. Walk it off. Rub some dirt on it. You're not hurt. You're okay. And those things kind of get ingrained into your person. So that you know, that, that was an angle that we wanted the brand to have as well, to sort of undo and unravel some of that stuff as it pertained to ED and to help men, you know, be more comfortable with having health conversations. And then that led into another campaign, which was about like what we found was that men were very interested to have this conversation, but they were still embarrassed. Right. Um, and so we had this campaign that was all about you're asking for a friend and friend was in quotes. So mm-hmm. men were like, yeah, tell me about that uh, ED thing. It's not for me. It's for my buddy. It's yeah. for a friend. Yeah. Uh, and that worked really well. And so, yeah. And, and then Ro- Roman evolved into Row because they moved into other verticals, which is what happens when you raise money. <laughs> <laughs> and now they have to do stuff for women as well. Um, not have to, but they've been yeah. sort of, you know, decided that that's a growth opportunity. And they raised $88 million of funding and we're equity partners in that business. So uh, that was, you know, f- f- fun on a advertising level and fun on sort of the business model level of figuring out how can we make that work. Right. So, and in fact, yeah. e- effective. I mean, I th- so many people talk about creativity and the, they want to win the Clio's obviously, yeah. and they want to win, you know, cans yeah. lines and stuff like that. But I think the Effie's personally are one of the more important shows out there. We entered that case study into the Effie's and I need to talk to someone at the Effie's because I don't know how you can have a campaign that is more effective. Because we, in the first 10 months, we had 15,000 new customers. We raised $88 million of funding. We became a brand like right in line with Hims. That was, you know, uh, in terms of talk value and so forth. And so we had all the metrics that we were sort of allowed to share. Mm-hmm. And uh, we didn't win an Effie. But, yeah, I, I agree. I think that's the difference is like if it don't work, right? Exactly. what are you it doing? It clever, but, yeah. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So um, – and you need to do it again tomorrow and the next day yeah. and the next day. Mm-hmm. So we agree. Um, the Effies is, is sort of the place to be. Well, speaking of men's health, I saved this question for last. Mm. I, I went around the office. I said, you were coming in. Yeah. We have questions. Anybody want to ask Ryan anything? And yeah. here's from a staffer that it isn't me, but yeah. – and I won't tell you who it is, but yeah. said, he's in such great shape. Ask him about his workout routine. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> it's 
I mean, I don't know. That's that's more like if I wasn't working out every day, I would be on Paxil and you know whatever other <laughs> anti-anxiety and social anxiety medication. So I've always just liked working out. Mm-hmm. Um, I did. We did CrossFit as an agency, not imposed, but we invited everyone to do CrossFit. And then I was doing CrossFit like five or six times a week, and and that started to like kill my joints because I'm now forty years old, and it's not. Um, you can't quite go as hard. So I started doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu wow. two years ago. Got my blue belt recently. And that's what I do four to five times a week. Wow. As well as walk that Australian shepherd. So <laughs> that's what it takes. And ride a scooter, apparently. And, and ride a scooter in the rain in New York City. There so, you go. yeah, thrill ride. But um, um, did, is there anything you want to talk about that I haven't brought up specifically? I was just trying to remember yeah. any campaigns that we have s- tried to sell <laughs> multiple times. Um, or even just something iconic that you were like, wow, damn, I wish. Oh, well, I mean, all right. Well, I was talking about that show. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were recently involved in a pitch that was um, about trying to give real people real good rates on car insurance. It wasn't Geico. It was mm-hmm. another competitor. It was kind of more of a folksy brand. Mm-hmm. And I actually just basically stole that idea that was from the show The Patriot. Mm-hmm. And it was about real people singing their um, real testimonials in this kind of like Woody Guthrie kind of a way. Yeah. And I mean, it was like a home run. It was a it was a great idea. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't even know if the pitch was real. I don't think they ever awarded the business. So that was another like little <laughs> fun thing that happens sometimes. But that was definitely one where I was like, how could you not? And we had like we got yeah. this guy to record it, and he sounded great. And so it was all done and ready to go. And like. Yeah, we didn't win the pitch, and you know, that's a disappointment. Sometimes yeah. you win, you lose. But uh, maybe yeah. we can sell that idea to someone else if you're listening and you want a really great idea. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan, so much for being here today to talk to us. I'm Judy Pollock again, executive editor for Ad Age. And I'm hosting the AdLib podcast today, which is produced by our famous Max Sternlicht. If you liked it, and I know you did, subscribe or tell a friend wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week.